Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. intriguing things about the story of Cortez's encounter with the Aztec Empire so far is that it's not nearly as one-sided as one might think considering we know how the story is going to end. The Europeans haven't arrived with advanced technology and strong moral compasses to wreak havoc on the Empire. Instead, they've mostly been used by groups within the Empire as a catalyst for local political appeal. Today, we'll look at what changed and why the Aztec Empire collapsed as quickly as it did. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hey. How's it going? Good. And we've been talking about the conquest of the Aztecs. Yay! Yeah. You, you picked a nice light topic this time around. <laughs> so uh, last time we left off, Cortez and his uh, conquistadors had just been welcomed into the city of Cholula, which was a major religious center. It has this gigantic pyramid-shaped temple, actually to Quetzalcoatl. Okay. Um, it was the main center of, of worship of, of that particular deity. And it was actually relatively poorly defended, specifically because in Aztec culture, combat is highly ritualized. Okay. That's true of most civilizations, to be honest. I mean, there's always conventions to warfare. Yeah. And that's... That's, that's a way of keeping it standard, keeping it... Well, you're protecting yourself by yeah. basically creating rules and feeling confident enough that your enemy won't break them, that you're conf- that you that you don't break them yourself, because you yeah. know that if you break them, then your enemy will break them as well. Yeah, it's a social contract, just like so many other things in any society. Yeah, and I mean, we've grown up thinking of warfare as this very total thing, and that's uh, brand new to the 20th century. Yeah, that's a that's a incredibly shocking and uh, unprecedented development in mm-hmm. uh, in the effect that technology has on warfare. I mean, anything before World War One, and you would never think of warfare this way. No. It's, uh, it's really, really shocking the more you look into it. But if you think of war any time up until then, with, with one or two like tiny exceptions right before World War One. Yeah. But if you think of, say, the Napoleonic era, you have massive armies fighting, yes, but civilians might as well not know that they're there yeah you know they're they're marching through these fields and maybe leaving them a little bit trampled but they're not attacking civilians no total war is a new 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 thing and a really frightening one but anyways that's that's a completely different topic yeah total war is fascinating but not really the point of this the point is that this city was so assured in its own importance as a holy site that it did not believe that any army would ever 
attack it because ah. it's the it's it's the temple of Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, it's largely you know the the rulers of this city are a priestly class. They're not politicians so much as they are religious figures. Yeah, yeah, there are there is a small force stationed in Cholula, but not not big. It's yeah. token. Yeah. In fact, the the backup plan is basically the priests asking Quetzalcoatl for aid, which <laughs> it's not seems, a great defense seems strategy silly to us because we don't believe in Quetzalcoatl. Is <laughs> really the is really the sticking point there. Uh, it seems to be the main problem with that plan. It seems, and again, we we get into so many problems with the the Aztec conquest. Um, in terms of different points of view and in, in accounts, but it yeah. seems that Montezuma sent word that the, the Spaniards were to be stopped in Cholula. He didn't want them coming any closer to Tenochtitlan. Yeah. And when they got into Cholula, you know, they weren't actually met by any officials, which was a little bit new for them. They'd been welcomed into every place that they had been. They were getting gifts. They were offered food the first couple of days. By the third day, no one was offering them any food or water. Okay. Uh, I mean, when they had been um, stationed um, with the Talox Collins, they hadn't even needed to plunder or, or scavenge or yeah. forage. They, they were told, basically, what do you need? We will get it for you. Yeah. You need provisions? Yeah, no problem right here. We got you. Yeah. Cholula was much colder in reception, and they started getting a little bit nervous. Yeah. As, as one does in that sort of situation. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it, it's, it's, uh, it's that whole, it's not paranoia, or I'm not paranoid if they really are coming for me type thing. Yeah. And I mean, by this point, his force had grown pretty large. Uh, by a couple thousand. That he needed to. That he needed to feed and. Mm-hmm. Yep, he was running into a little bit of a problem. Now, they also noticed that uh, there were a, a few small fortifications on a few sides of the city. Um, the whole city was not fortified, but it almost looked like somebody had been trying to put up fortifications and had not gotten them all done by the time they got there, which oh, okay. was also suspicious. Yeah. And finally, they got word from Marina that she had actually had a conversation with some of the officers' wives. And somebody had let slip that they were planning an ambush of the Spaniards. In fact, they were planning to slit their throats while they slept. Oh. Yeah. And the Flox Collins had been warning them this whole entire time. Remember, they had not wanted them to come through Cholula yeah. on their road to Tenochtitlan. They were asking them to go uh, north around through this this more uh, friendly territory. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I named it last time, but it was mostly because I'm afraid of that name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's called, let's say... Quetzalcinco? Something like that. Okay. Man, I'm doing my best with these things. That's... <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, they, the, the, the Tlaxx Collins had been asking them to go through this city this whole time. And, yeah. And they had come through Cholula instead. And the Tlaxx Collins were basically like, I told you this was a bad idea. They were like mortal enemies with the Cholulans. Yeah. And they were like, I told you this was bad. I told you this was a setup. We never should have come to this place. So Cortez decided that the only prudent action uh was to plan a preemptive strike they killed most of the nobility in that city which remember also includes the priestly class right yeah the 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 priestly class and the the noble class are very intertwined yes intertwined in this 
in this civilization. So yeah. they're they're killing holy men as well as lords and ladies. That's just there, there was there was no way around that if you're trying to make uh, to to send a message. Yeah, they killed a lot of citizens. It was a it was a massacre, uh, and then they set fire to the city. Oh wow! Um, the casualty numbers vary drastically because you get numbers. For, for something like this, you get numbers from the people who were there. Yeah. You get numbers from the Spanish writing several decades after trying to justify the actions of these people. You get writings from the Aztec people soon after the fall of the Aztec Empire that are trying to rationalize what's happened to them. Yeah. And you get writings from people who have a pro-Aztec lean to their biases centuries after trying to show the uh, the extent of the atrocities committed against them. Yeah. So there are a lot of different agendas when you're looking at some of these numbers. Yeah. Uh, all of which is to say I've seen anything between three and 30,000 people killed. That's 10 times as much. One number is 10 times as much as the other. That's a big variation. Yeah. Even 3,000 is a lot of people. Yes. It's a lot of people. And, you know, again, there's not a lot that you can really say for justifying the massacre of, of that many people. The Tlaxcalans Collins blamed uh, Cholula, uh, the, the city of Cholula, for what had happened. Okay. Basically said, you know, uh, they actually claimed that the Cholulans had ca- uh, kidnapped some emissaries and that Cortez was fighting to get them back. To free them? That's, uh, that's a diplomatic no-no. You don't just kidnap the emissaries. Yeah. And Cortez was doing what he had to to get them back. The Aztecs actually blame the Tlaxcalan people because they must have prodded Cortez into it because of their resentment for the city of Cholula. Okay. You'll notice that no one's actually blaming the Spaniards in this. Hey. Hey. Why is that? What would would be your your gut reaction? Well, I mean, they're the catalyst for that civil war that's brewing, but I'd guess that the resentment for each other is going deeper at this point than their hatred of this invading force basically mm-hmm. that's that's very astute are they are they I'm, I'm assuming that the the aztecs are basically using the spaniards politically at this point well i i, I would argue that the the Tlox collins are using the spaniards far more than the spaniards are using the Tlox collins yeah and the the mexica i i mean when we're talking about the aztecs at this point really what we're talking about is the mexica yeah um because they're they're the ones running the whole empire out of Tenochtitlan, and at this point, Tenochtitlan is by far the the most powerful of the three uh, of the Triple Alliance. Yeah. So we can we can pretty much consider the Mexica the the ruling class at this point. Okay. So I think you're absolutely right. I I was to be honest with you, expecting uh, you to say that it's because the the Spaniards won it, and that there's a lot of apologists going in and kind of trying to forgive what's happened. Okay. Because that's a lot of what I see uh, when when discussing this this subject. Yeah. In reality, let's remember the numbers that we're talking about here. We've got under a thousand Spaniards. Yeah. And then we've got several thousand Slox Collins, as well as a bunch of uh, a bunch of Teutonics. Yeah. The Spaniards are being used as a as a starting point for insurrection. Yeah. They think that this is all they're doing but they think this is all conquest yeah no 
No, that's not what ha- not that's not what's happening. Not not yet, at least. This the story is. I, I know it gets very bad, but it's almost funny. A little bit at times. Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely fair because the the Spanish seem downright incompetent at this point. Yeah, like um, it's, it's so big it's almost it's almost Monty Python esque at points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very they're very full of themselves. Yeah, um, and it's it really shows through in their actions. Yeah, no one's. No one's blaming the Spaniards for what's happened here. <laughs> Except Cortez. <laughs> who basically says, after this massacre has happened, sends a message to Montezuma directly. And he says, greetings, you know, I've, I've been speaking with your emissaries, but I felt it was time to address you. And I need to inform you of something that's happened. Yeah. There are these citizens within the, the borders of your empire, the Cholulans, who plotted treachery and, uh, and deceit against me and my men uh they were planning to kill us all in our sleep and for this dishonor we had to teach them a lesson yeah and montezuma replied in kind with greetings yeah he also blamed the locals for their their petty differences and the fact that they could not set that aside to be uh, a more unified part of the aztec empire yeah basically at least on paper absolving cortez of any wrongdoing here hmm and officially invited Cortez to see Tenochtitlan. So, oh, that's a, a first. Things, well, there's a couple of things happening here. Number one, they're both trying to smooth this under the rug because, you know, Montezuma has no idea what's going on here. He has no idea who these Spaniards are yeah. or why they're causing so much trouble yeah. in his empire. But the fact of the matter is, one of his major cities and a major religious center has just yeah. suffered a catastrophic just massacre. Got wrecked. It's on fire. It's in flames. Yeah. It's essentially gone. So he has to deal with that reality. He also has to deal with the fact that there is no stopping Cortez. He's been trying to stop Cortez since he landed. Yeah. He's been trying for months. Yeah. He's been trying to pay the guy off. The guy just keeps saying, thank you. (laughs) And keeps coming. So obviously that's not working. Yeah. So what do you say? Do you send warriors against him? He just torched your fourth best city. He just torched your fourth... Well, not your fourth best city, but th- that was the one that they were originally going to go to. Cholula was not the fourth best city. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood. No. That's okay. I know. It gets very confusing with the names. Yeah. No. Cholula was not a major city center. What it was was a major cultural center. Okay. Because it was almost exclusively a temple city. Yeah. But in any case, Cortez rides into Tenochtitlan and is blown away yeah because they have never seen anything like this in their entire lives none of the conquistadors yeah there is almost nothing like it in the world and even when you compare it on on a population level if you were to go see constantinople at this point in time you would not be impressed in the same way it would be large yeah constantinople was not planned constantinople is a city that has been growing organically for yeah for for centuries it's a bit of a mess Tenochtitlan looks the way that you see CG cities from the future in movies now okay where it seems weird how groomed it is and how perfect everything is and how everything yeah. fits together Alien. perfectly yeah like a little creepy yeah beautiful but in a disturbing unnatural way exactly Okay. That's Tenochtitlan. It's, it's overwhelming. I mean, the, the streets are so wide. Why would they make the streets so wide? There's more room for buildings there. 
<laughs> that makes no sense. Clearly yeah, these savages have no idea what to do with their space. Yeah. But that's not it either, because it's all well laid out, laid out uh, yeah. along a system of, of three main causeways and, and feeder roads leading to these main causeways. There's a, a market district that's set up specifically for markets. There are There's temples. aqueducts, so I'm assuming that there are beautiful gardens and things like that. There are artificial hanging gardens. Perfect. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's apparently just the, the most beautiful sight to behold. And they have no idea what to do with it. <laughs> and they ride in and, and there is Montezuma in person in the middle of the great causeway to meet them. And the chiefs of the Texcoco and the Tlacopan, the two other members yep. of the, the, the Triple Alliance, are on each side of him yeah. there to meet him. And there are about 200 other nobles all there to meet them yeah. and to greet them as guests. And Montezuma himself lays a... A necklace of flowers around the, the the neck of Cortez and welcomes him. He says he has this really peculiar speech about how uh, his seat is waiting for him and that Montezuma has been only uh, keeping it for a while for him and that uh, anything that Montezuma has is his. And you read it and it sounds very odd, but if you look at it a little bit closer and if you kind of just like look through it, yeah. he's basically saying Mikasa es su casa. <laughs> he's, okay. I, I mean I, that's that's. You know that that's more my interpretation than anything but he's using diplomatic language he's welcoming to the, them to the city he's yeah it's a, again metaphor versus exactly it's a matter of of uh, of diplomacy of, yeah. of the language of state which is not a natural thing no it's in fact by its entire nature a completely unnatural construct of language because often what you're doing is saying the exact opposite of actually what you mean to say yeah the art of diplomacy is saying things that people don't want to hear in a way that they're happy to hear them. Yeah. And really, this is what Montezuma is doing. And uh, after he gives Cortez this wreath of flowers, Cortez uh, stands and goes to embrace him, which is what you would do Yeah. Uh, if you were welcome to a European court in the manner that he was. Yeah. You know, as, as a matter of state, which this was, and he's not allowed to do so. Oh, is, is Montezuma like a he's not like a, a god king? He's not. However, he is also the em- uh, the emperor of the Aztecs as well as a high priest because okay. that is a major part of Montezuma's uh, identity is that he's very spiritually active. Okay. There are a lot of reports of uh, ill omens witnessed by Montezuma or his priests before the coming of the Spaniards. There is almost nothing to suggest that until well after the fall of the Aztec Empire. Okay. So probably what we're seeing is things like either the newly subjugated Aztec people trying to explain away that subjugation through the concept that it was... uh, Divine? Yeah, divinely mandated that it was to happen. Because if the gods say that the Aztec Empire is to fall, then there was nothing they could have done about it anyways. The other thing is that Cortez seemed very much in love with this idea of the natives considering him gods. Yeah. Or a god, I should say. Um, and I get the impression that the the uh, Spanish accounts of all of this really play up that angle. Mm-hmm. And they take things like being given gifts and spin it into being given tributes as divine figures. Yeah. And there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of spin on it. So, yeah, you'll read things like there were 
eight omens that apparently Montezuma received before they came. And they're all kind of weird things. Like one of them is that uh, there was a there was a temple built out of straw that was struck by lightning and burned down, or which, which just seems like a thing that might happen, <laughs> or uh, that a two headed man ran down the street, which I don't think happened at all. Uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, th- there were eight of these omens, and you know, of, of varying seriousness from the sound of things. But uh, one of them. Uh, that sounds very poetic after the fact was that he saw a vision of people coming riding deer-like animals and coming to battle deer-like animals being the horses that they were riding which they were not familiar with in mesoamerica yeah again apocryphal but probably the best one that out of the omens that i heard yeah just because it's putting things into a i don't know whoever came up with that one did a good job of framing things in a pre-columbian frame of mind which is interesting yeah so anyways Montezuma receives them. He puts them up in a in like the equivalent of a royal palace. It's not his own home, but it's like super nice. But it's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's enough room for all of the Spanish. Oh, okay. Um, Not all of them inside, but at least on the grounds of the palace as well. Yeah. Most like some inside, some on the grounds, Um, which is still like huge. Yeah. That's that's enormous. That's they're trying to accommodate nearly 700 Spaniards. Yeah. Um. In, the, in these accounts, I was not super clear on how their indigenous allies fit into the living arrangements. So I cannot tell you if they were housed in the same grounds or if they were expected to camp outside the city or what the deal was there. Would they have had, like, like ambassadorial houses in the main city-states from the outlying cities? You mean, like, do they have embassies? Yeah. I get the impression that that's not really that that's a very that's a very western concept i think the way that they would more likely do business is through edicts they'd basically be telling them what to do yeah and they would be sending emissaries out to these various tributary uh nations yeah okay that that makes a lot more sense yeah okay there are reports again how apocryphal they are i'm not sure that there was the sep- the second meeting at this residence where Montezuma came in and explained to them this mythical significance of their arrival, that there are prophecies in Aztec religion that foretell the arrival of essentially uh, humans from the East that would have pale faces. This is probably not true. Yeah. It's true that Montezuma was very obsessed with, um, with prophecies. It's yeah. possible that there were certain prophecies that he saw the Spaniards as filling. There's a very problematic branch of interpretation of contact with Western civilizations called, well, it's called white gods, which is, is this, this issue of Europeans for some reason believing that they are being received as deities when they show up. And it's kind of the ugly flip side. Well, I guess not that much more ugly flip side of the whole subhuman and i say that in the biggest scare quotes uh interpretation of indigenous peoples yeah where they're basically going we're so much more advanced than these people they must think we're like deities to them and it's a very problematic way of looking at things and anytime you see anything like that i would be extremely suspicious yeah because again these are very complex people and and very intelligent people and just because uh they're very different than europeans does not mean that they think that we're gonna we're gonna pull out a, a steel axe and they're gonna be like oh from the heavens 
you know, like it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. If you saw technology that was a hundred years from the future, you'd probably be able to recognize it as technology, not necessarily. There's a divine. There's a good joke I heard once. What's that? It was about a um, a man in the fifties who got washed up on a, a desert island with a bunch of like natives. Sure. And they were they were fairly primitive. They were using wood tools and everything. Sure. So he pulls out, pulls out a, a lighter, mm-hmm. and he go. He, he lights it and goes, "Look, fire!" And they go, "Whoa!" He goes, "Bet you've never seen that before." They go, "Oh no, we've never seen anyone light it on the first try." <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. But no, it's 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 absolutely correct. That's exactly the sort of uh, mindset that uh, people are using, and in a much more. Uh, genuine way because I mean as you as you mentioned last time by the time you get to the the 50s there is this myth of the noble savage yeah and this sort of uh, innocence that comes along with living closer to nature yeah um, which is just as much a myth as um, some of the uh, the more brutal uh, stereotypes that go around mm-hmm. um, indigenous people I, I I don't know there's there's always there's always this attempt to because it's such a big topic to simplify it as much as possible because it's hard to remember that there are dozens if not hundreds of different nations that are living in the uh, western hemisphere at this point in time all at least as different if not more so than the nations that are living in europe and spread over a much bigger distance Mm -hmm. and to simplify them all as being close to nature and childlike or um extremely brutal and and uh warlike or anything if you want to describe any single attribute to everyone that's in that con those two continents yeah you're gonna get it wrong yeah badly and really badly these are complex people and there's no reason to expect their societies to be any less complicated or developed than anything that was going on anywhere else in the world at this point in time and i know i've been ranting about this constantly throughout this topic but it's so important to understanding this uh meeting between two civilizations because Cortez didn't just roll in and and destroy a primitive, backwards, sub-European civilization. No. There are two completely different worlds that are meeting at the same time, but they're meeting on, on equal terms. And in a lot of ways, the Aztecs have the upper hand. Yeah. In most ways, in fact. And it's really important to remember that when we're going over this story. So... Let's go back to Montezuma and him talking to these Spaniards. So supposedly there's this whole thing about him believing that they were that their coming was foretold, that there would be uh, a people that came from the east. It's it's always in like language along the lines of like from the from the direction of the rising from, sun, from the land of the rising of the sun, and and it's yeah you know it, to to make it sound more mystic and yeah maybe that's how it was said I don't know but it I feel like they probably had. A word for East. (laughs) Anyways. And Montezuma does supposedly at this meeting swear fealty to the Spanish throne. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, we had the Charter of 1513, right? Yeah. Anyone that swears fealty to the Spanish throne, and this is the flip side of it. Anyone that swears fealty... Has to get baptized. They do, and that's fine. He'll get baptized. He doesn't care. He's got tons of gods. Yeah. He's fine with that. No. Anyone that swears fealty is now a subject of the Spanish throne and is privy to all the protections that come with being a uh, subject 
of the Spanish throne. Okay. Good move, Montezuma. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. That works. Again, all of this is probably anachronistic. We don't even know if he necessarily swore fealty, but it was in Cortez's interest for him to have done so. And yeah. so he would definitely report that he had done so. And all was going really well for a while. They were hanging out. It was in the biggest, craziest, coolest city that 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 existed at this point in time. They probably had a hell of a party. Yeah, they were eating super well. It was delicious. They had never eaten anything like it. All of these people bathed often twice a day. Yeah. Spanish were a bunch of weird, smelly, dirty, <laughs> just like disgusting people compared to all of these Aztecs. Yeah. Like, I, I can't even imagine what the Aztecs much, must have thought of these dudes. Come tramping out of the <laughs> desert or out of the out of the jungle and just smelling just terrible. <laughs> and I'm sure they were like, you must be so happy to be back at civilization where you can bathe. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Civilized what? Civilized what? You wash yourselves? No, you need a good, you need a good, like... Healthy dirt coat to keep the germs away. Listen, that's, that smell is the, the miasma of health that surrounds me and keeps out the, keeps out the pox. <laughs> the aura of vitality. Ugh. And all is going pretty well. Yep. Until they find out. They find out that back down at Veracruz, okay. uh, some Mexica soldiers had killed seven Spanish soldiers. Uh-oh. In a skirmish. Along with many Teutonics. Oh. Many. I don't know how many. All of them? A bunch. A, a good baker's handful. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, it doesn't say. It will not... I, I will never know how many Teutonics died. Yeah. And no one will ever record it. And that's a bit of a tragedy. Cortez responded by conducting... A super stealthy night raid with a couple of his officers, and they uh, they kidnapped Montezuma. Brought what? Him back. Yeah, they brought him back to their palace. Yeah, guys, they seem pretty competent. They did a pretty good job. And they said, "I'm just, I'm just imagining a bunch of Spaniards like putting, putting like black grease paint on their shiny silver <laughs> conquistador helmets." Diego, you gotta grease down that mustache. Your clearance on both sides. <laughs> Anyways. Basically, they went, okay, we're holding Montezuma until we've got some answers on this. What happened? Yeah. If we're gonna be cool on this, you guys can't be killing our guys. Yeah. And the captains in charge of the Mexica raid were actually burned at the stake, which was not a usual That's Aztec pun- yeah. punishment. But they were do- it was done to, to appease the Spaniards. Except then they kept Montezuma as insurance, essentially. And Montezuma continued to rule from that palace uh, beside, beside, beside Cortez. Cortez, which is kind of weird. It's a little weird. And this is one of those things that's probably the hardest to understand about Montezuma, as well as about Cortez. Because by all accounts, they're fairly good friends at this point. They would, uh, they, they would play this board game together. They would oh, spend yeah? time together. They would, you know, like, and... and there didn't seem to be a lot of animosity. In fact, Montezuma seemed to supposedly, again, who knows if this is true or not, uh, supposedly believed that his ki- his kidnapping was divine will. That basically, if he wasn't meant to, to have been kidnapped, his men would have been able to stop Cortez. Yeah. But you've got this weird, smelly European that managed to pull him out of his bed at night. That must be what they want. Hey. 
And again, is that a projection of later Span- Spanish writings? Is that what Montezuma actually believed? Is that I, I don't know. It's yeah. I, I can only report what... Uh, it's fuzzy. Yeah. Over the next six months, Cortes sent out scouts to figure out what exactly is going on in the whole Aztec Basin, because it's a fairly big area, and he wants to figure out, you know, what, what its deal is. Yeah. This whole time, the Mexico were really chafing at this whole captive emperor thing yeah they did not like it one bit and there was a lot of unrest there was a lot of problems with people wanting to get the spanish out of their city trying to figure out why they were even there this is a city of tens of thousands of people there are easily enough guards to expel these guys why are we tolerating this a lot of people were looking to montezuma's brother quitlahuac who was next in line for the throne and basically saying maybe we should get this guy in charge he seems like maybe he'd at least do something yeah but montezuma was still alive and he was saying no i'm fine with this arrangement and he was still passing out edicts and and he's still the emperor and what do you do yeah huh that's a little it's a weird situation absolutely unprecedented it's very like they, they don't know what to do about it finally there's several Aztec priests that have gotten messages from gods basically saying, if you don't get rid of the Spaniards, we're going to leave the city. <laughs> Which is almost certainly political pressure from those yeah. priests, but there you have it. That's how it's being presented to the people. Yeah. But again, you're running into this problem that unless Montezuma orders something, they're kind of out of luck. Yeah. Now... Cortez's past is going to catch up with him a little bit at this point. Because in April of 1520, he finds out that there's a Spanish contingent coming from Cuba. Velazquez has sent out a, uh, a raiding party to arrest him. Okay. He's never really quite had that whole Veracruz governor thing approved by Charles V yet. And even if it had, I don't think Velazquez would care. He was yeah. very upset about how things had gone at the beginning of this expedition. Yeah. So Cortez leaves his deputy, Pedro de Alvarado, in charge in Tenochtitlan with, I believe it's put as, like, some of his less trustworthy soldiers. Okay. The point being that he took all his good guys to deal with the Spanish, who he saw as a much bigger threat. Yeah. He figured that holding down the fort in Tenochtitlan shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. And he goes down to Veracruz. They were successful in driving off the attack. And um, Was Velasquez with them? No, he okay. wasn't with them. Um, basically, at this point in time, he, uh, he didn't kill all the soldiers. He made it very clear that you could basically join him or you could uh, swim back to Cuba. <laughs> uh, he had previously sunk all of his ships it was to deal with any Velasquez supporters that were within his ranks okay um he didn't burn his ships that's a common misconception and it wasn't just to be like well we're here now we're gonna conquer yeah it was because there was a mutiny among his men and they were trying to take a ship back to Cuba okay uh so he he scuttled them all yeah so he got some new ships out of this whole deal he got a bunch of new men uh about 1300 more uh Spaniards who he saw as being extremely valuable yeah and he ended up actually gaining a bunch more indigenous soldiers as well, about uh, 2,000 uh, Talascans. Okay. That's uh, another, you know, local tribe. And he's feeling like he's in better shape than he's ever been. He 
places a lot of value on Spanish troops. Yeah. Uh, for reasons we've gone over many times. So he's he-, he heads back. And when he gets there, the city is in utter chaos. He doesn't know exactly what happened, so he heads for home, the, yeah, the palace. that palace. And he's allowed in, but there are troops everywhere. So he goes in, and he asks Alvarado what happened. Yeah. And he finds out that there had been a, fe- a festival a couple nights before, like very soon before he yeah. got back. And Aztec religious festivals tended to be very exuberant and there's a lot of kind of you go all out with the costumes yeah you get uh you get wild with the dancing yeah it's very you know and and i mean that's that's not atypical the idea of sort of whipping yourself into a frenzy is is common in a lot of um religious traditions so here's what happened during this festival alvarado and a few dozen of his men locked all the doors to the temple and slaughtered most of the people inside. Okay. Why? That's a great question. There's a couple of versions of this. Potentially, he was worried about the fact that the crowd seemed to be getting so unruly that he was getting a little bit nervous about the fact that they had been so unfriendly to the Spaniards recently that things might get out of hand and they might attack the Spaniards. Okay. I mean, there are lots of people inside this temple. Yeah. He would not be able to control things, especially with Cortez away. Yeah. Dealing with the situation in Veracruz. So maybe he got scared. Maybe he saw that everybody was wearing all of their best jewelry and got greedy. Uh. Maybe he had heard that there was a plot to attack the Spaniards, which was very likely at this point in time. Remember yeah. all the people that are unfriendly towards the Spaniards and was looking to send a message. We don't know. All of those versions have been told at different times. The thing that matters is that during a religious festival, which, by the way, had had approval from Montezuma to go on with the blessing of Cortez. Yeah. Or sorry, uh, not not Cortez, uh, Alvarado. Okay. Who was basically Montezuma's handler while Cortez was away. Yeah. So he had approved this festival. Then, during the festival, locked the doors and killed a lot of people. Yeah. They got a lot of treasure out of it. They did get a lot of treasure out of it. They already had a lot of treasure, though. They had found a treasure room in the palace where they were staying with so much gold. <laughs> and Montezuma had basically told them at one point, uh, we don't have a lot of, like, gold or silver here. Like, that's not something we have a ton of. Like, Yeah. But if you want some, I mean, sure, I guess. They didn't really value gold and silver that much. Okay. It wasn't... I mean, they liked it. It looked nice. Yeah, that that always confused me that they they didn't value it so high, but they still made decoration and everything out of it. Yeah, well, you can buy costume jewelry for four dollars. Okay, that's okay. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's also the sort of thing where people put on jewelry or or uh, pairs of glasses or watches that aren't necessarily terribly expensive necessarily but still make them feel good to wear they think it makes them look better yeah i think that's all it comes down to is decorative anyways cortez now has a situation on his hands yeah a big situation and after a while i mean they're they're stuck in this palace there's no way they can really go he asks montezuma to speak to the crowd this has been almost two months of them basically under house arrest and so on the night between June 30th and July 1st, uh, 1520, he gets 
Montezuma to get out on the balcony and speak to the people. Yeah. They start hurling rocks at him. At Montezuma? Yes. Things have gotten so bad that the people themselves have started turning on Montezuma. They see him as a collaborator. They see him as having betrayed the Mexica people by working with these Spaniards. They don't understand why why he's not protecting them. They don't understand why he's not standing up to them. They don't understand why he's not giving the order to attack. They don't understand why he's not giving that order even at potential sacrifice of his own life. Yeah. Because that's the kind of thing that a good emperor would do. Yeah. And he's not giving them satisfactory enough answers for them to be okay with tacit Spanish control. Yeah. What happens next is another, maybe it's one thing, maybe it's another. Maybe Montezuma dies from the injuries of all of these rocks. He got hit by a lot of rocks. That that tends to hurt. The Spanish say that the Aztecs killed him. Okay. With the rocks. The Aztecs say, uh, those were pebbles. He was stabbed to death by the Spanish. Be that as it may, Montezuma dies that night. Okay. And the Spanish make a break for it. They run. They run carrying everything that they can carry. As much treasure as they possibly can. All of their armaments. Yeah. They get out of the city because they no longer have Montezuma protecting them. That must be, that must have been so terrifying. The Spanish that were lucky enough to have horses made it out fairly quickly. Yeah. An alarm was sounded fairly early on and the bridge that they were using, it was actually like a a floating bridge, a temporary bridge because they weren't using the main causeways to run. Okay. uh, Was cut and a lot of Spanish infantry drowned. They, they were unable to make the crossing. They're wearing heavy uh, metal armor. They're yeah. trying to carry all of this treasure. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot didn't make the crossing. Yeah. Um, this is known as uh, La Noche Triste, the, the Night of Sorrow. Okay. It's said that once they got outside of the city, uh, Cortez stopped and broke down and, at the number of, of Spanish lives that were lost, the amount of treasure that was lost. Yeah. The, how close he had been to holding the city yeah it just slipped through his fingers it was a it was a very difficult time for him he was going through some things there there was there's actually a a tree supposedly that he leaned against as he cried and it's like a like a tradition thing that that's the spot where cortez stopped again probably anachronistic makes for a good story good story yeah absolutely i'll take it mexica troops uh harassed them the whole way through the retreat cavalry uh, cortez kept turning and charging with his cavalry over and over and over until finally a fairly major aztec commander was killed in one of the charges and they finally relented and let the yeah let the spanish go all told they lost uh 860 spanish soldiers and at least a thousand tlaxcalan warriors yeah so at least at least yeah that number was a little better than some that i've seen yeah uh, I, I don't think it was much more than that. But that's a lot. Yeah. So, Night of Sorrow indeed. That's basically Cortez's lowest point. So I think that's probably a good spot to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, him kind of rallying and picking up the pieces. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hey. How's it going? Good. Nice. Like, I'm getting excited. Like, I haven't 
I haven't really heard the story, but it is epic. It's not going so good for Cortez right now, though. No, he's having a bad time. He's having a real bad time. I mean, I'm not feeling that sorry for him. He, he had a rough day. He, he did have, like, a really bad day that day. And, I mean, as, as unpopular an opinion as this is, Cortez is an underdog for this story. Like, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Which, I guess, makes the outcome that much worse. But, I, I mean, if I was placing bets at the beginning of this thing... Wouldn't have been with him. <laughs> no. Not at all. Cortez and his men are kind of licking their wounds at this point. Yeah. After the uh, the Night of Sorrow. Heading back towards Veracruz. Yeah, they I'm actually... Assuming... They were kind of making their way that way, but they actually ended up finding refuge along, among the uh, Tlaxcalan. Okay. They took them in. They said, Listen, we thought you were brave before. The fact that so many of you made it out of that city that is so strongly defended yeah. makes us think that much more highly of you. Uh-huh. Whatever you need, let us help you. Apparently, every single one of the 440 Spaniards that escaped was wounded in some capacity. <laughs> That's probably an exaggeration, just to make for like an especially good story. Yeah. But... I'm sure the casualties were incredibly oh, high. Oh, yeah. And when we're talking about casualties, I think this is a thing that gets misunderstood fairly often. The definition of a casualty is anything that happens that removes someone from the active duty, like fit for duty roster. Yeah. So a casualty often gets confused with killed in action, Yeah. which is not true. A casualty is killed in action... Uh, wounded in action badly enough that you can't return to active service immediately. Yeah. Or taken prisoner. Okay. Or missing in action. Okay. So it it covers a little bit more it's than a pretty just broad category. But essentially, there were complete casualties for the Spanish side. Yeah. Um, it was it was pretty bad for them. So they took their time recovering. So all, all of this happened, as we said, in, in at the beginning of July of 1520. They basically spend the rest of the year convalescing. Okay. It's They, they got hit really hard. <laughs> I, I keep kind of going over that, but I, I can't understate it. They just rumbled with, like, the biggest player in southern North America. Yeah. And one of the largest powers in the world. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a small thing. Yeah. It's not a small thing at all. The Tlox Collins also pledged more than 10,000 reinforcements. Okay. There were quite a few Spanish reinforcements that were sent from Veracruz. I mean, Veracruz is kind of... Like, it, it started pretty strong. Like, it started strong fairly quickly. Yeah. They very quickly started getting settlers, merchants. Yeah. Uh, they, they set up... They wanted it set up as a port on the coast. Because yeah. that's something the Spanish hadn't had before Veracruz. Mm-hmm. And so when you're the first one like that, you get a lot of resources thrown your way to get things going. Yeah. So they were fairly easily able to get extra Spanish reinforcements. Probably came from uh, Hispaniola at this point. Cuba wasn't exactly an option. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there were some, but they'd have a hard time getting there. I, <laughs> I don't feel like Velazquez would be up for that. And basically by, well, the day after Christmas, 1520, they were finally ready to head back out. And Cortez has decided that rather than just kind of shrinking back to uh, Veracruz, you know, 
kind of yeah uh gathering his his resources and his composure um that he's just gonna go for it he thinks that Tenochtitlan was so close to falling under his command that he would be able to do it he was confident this is probably the biggest misstep that Cortez made in my opinion yeah that's hubris right there yeah mind you he did just receive 10,000 Tlaxcalan reinforcements which is not a small number of troops yeah and these are troops who are highly trained they're very good warriors they are troops who are highly motivated they hate the Mexica yeah and these are troops who know the area so well because they have been living here for generations they know it like the back of their hand where the Spaniards are bumbling around they have no idea what they're doing yeah they're not ready for Mexican terrain they're not ready for no. the layout of the land they don't know where they're going yeah they're they're pretty stumbling around in the dark they they they, they rely so heavily on their indigenous guides yeah that again when you're looking at this it seems like it's Cortez rallying What's happening here is Tlaxcala uh, is seeing the Mexica looking like they're in a very vulnerable position. They've just lost a fairly strong emperor. I mean, Montezuma gets a lot of flack for being one of the last emperors of a falling empire. Yeah. that You just never look good out of that. It no. doesn't matter how badly things are stacked against you. You get a bad reputation out of that. Yeah. And what deserved or not. There are a lot of people who will look at what Montezuma did, kind of rolling over a little bit, as probably the most prudent course of action given the way that things were falling together. He had a fairly sizable chunk of his empire ready to rebel against him. Yeah. Never mind the Spanish. That's not really the issue there. In fact, treating the Spanish as guests was the most effective way to neutralize them. Yeah. That was a strong, very shrewd diplomatic solution to a potentially... explosive yeah yeah military position uh situation so i don't know i don't i don't know how to rate montezuma as a leader necessarily but i don't feel like he did that badly no it sounds like he did pretty well for if anything he may have been crippled by his personal brand of understanding of free will in a religious context namely namely how much the things happening to him were fated to be and how much he was personally able to affect change against them okay yep because he's he does it does seem that he was fairly complacent when it came to things like that yeah but there have been far greater leaders that have committed far more serious uh, missteps <laughs> yeah so I, I i don't know i don't feel like condemning him over that particularly yeah but in any case the spanish march off with their flux call and allies on December 26, 1520. They get to Tenochtitlan and they find out that since 1520, the entire city has been ravaged by the worst case of smallpox. Oh. See, the Spanish were a lot more dangerous than they looked. They brought smallpox with them. And, man, I actually really love talking about smallpox, which is a weird thing to say, considering how horrific it is. But I find it really interesting. Okay, quick. Sorry, quick question. If they're spending so much more time with the uh, Tlaxcalans, why weren't they hit? Oh, they were. But it's, okay. The thing to remember about any epidemic it's condensed in a city? Yeah. Okay. Population density is a big player. Okay. Now, the Tlaxcalans are going get to get hit really hard as well, but there are so few of them spending time around the Spaniards yeah. that 
yeah, some got sick, sure. But they weren't necessarily hit, hitting epidemic proportions in their capital city. Okay. Which is what is about to happen in yeah. Mexico. Because, yeah, as, as big and as impressive as Tenochtitlan is, it's also an urban center and very dense. Yeah. And smallpox... Smallpox is a tricky disease. Um, I did a whole episode on smallpox. People should probably go back and listen to it at some point. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. But smallpox has a couple of things that make it especially deadly. One of which is that you can be a carrier for as much as three weeks before showing any symptoms. Uh... And you can spread it around during that time. And yeah. you are infectious, but you're not showing any symptoms. Symptomatic, yeah. Because smallpox begins actually in the, uh, <clears throat> in the respiratory system and then moves through your lungs into your bloodstream. And then through the bloodstream, it propagates the, the, the pox, the scabs on okay. the skin. But it has to basically permeate your entire body before you get the scabs. Yeah. And in that entire time, it's residing in your respiratory system. And every time you cough, yeah. you're spreading smallpox-infused spit, basically, into the air. Particulate. Particulate, exactly. And it, it, it's fairly robust in that form. Wow. Yeah. Smallpox is a terrible disease. That's that's one of the things. If you, I, I'm assuming you haven't listened to that episode. If you ever get a chance, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's there's a lot of really interesting things about that disease that make it especially horrible, and the fact that we've managed to eradicate it is actually really impressive. But it's almost a little bit sad because smallpox is the only disease that it really seems like we can eradicate on that in that same way. Yeah, it's got a couple of characteristics that make it. Uh, especially deadly, but especially easy to eradicate. Okay. All things considered. Namely, that there's no such thing as... Uh, number one, it there are no animal carriers. Oh, it's a purely... Purely human disease. Huh. And number two, you can't have... It, there, there have been zero recorded cases of there being asymptomatic carriers. Oh. Which both of those things are incredibly rare in diseases. Yeah. Um, so that what that means is in order to lock down smallpox is you find someone with smallpox and you isolate them and you isolate everyone that's had any contact with them in the past three weeks. If one of those people develops the symptoms, lock down the same circle around them. Yeah. Break that off. Break off all exposure with quarantine. Yeah. And as soon as the last person goes three weeks without smallpox... You've broken a chain of smallpox that goes back centuries yes. of sick people. Because once no one has the smallpox, it can't come back. Yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling on stuff that I've already done a lot of material <laughs> on. The other thing with smallpox is that at this point in time, Europeans have had centuries to... Develop partial immunities, at least. Yeah, the most vulnerable of the, of the, uh, of the population have already died off in fairly significant numbers. Yeah. Survival rate is a relatively high, approximately 60%. Yeah. About one in three people will die from smallpox when you get them. Okay. It's a hor- And that's that's where we've gotten to. We're doing a good job at one in three. Yeah. Indigenous populations had no such immunity. None. Yeah. Just got- and it frequently ravaged 90 to 95% of the population. <sighs> so by the time Cortez gets back to Tenochtitlan, it is... There's, there's nothing left. There's no fighting spirit there. They're all sick from smallpox. Yeah. The new emperor has died of the disease. That was Montezuma's uh, brother. Yeah. He's died and there's already a new emperor. He's Montezuma's cousin. 
they're kind of running out yeah um which is i guess a a little bit of a better way to put it but the, the fact is that they're running out of leadership. Well, you know, that, that's a disease that hits nobles as much as common folk. Yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. It does not discriminate. Even given that, it took them eight months of siege to take down that city. <sighs> they brought in all of these little war boats that they floated in the lake. Yep. They uh, broke down the, the aqueducts. Okay. So they killed their freshwater supplies. And they barricaded all three causeways across into the city so that no food could get in and they still held out for eight months in the middle of a smallpox epidemic wow yeah and so i mean yeah there's two ways of looking at that number one the spanish weren't maybe as good at siege warfare as they could have been with a far bigger army and Mm -hmm. say uh cannons that weren't from the early 1500s (laughs) yeah that is to say not incredibly effective yeah still terrifying i mean geez you, you've heard cannons going off yeah if you had no idea what was going on oh man oh thunder gods are yep. angry absolutely a whole eight months before finally the sea the, the the city falls yeah the uh the new emperor quatamoc was captured and the city fell in battle there was a massacre it was just Anytime you hear about a siege and you hear about a city falling, just assume the worst terrible things are happening in that situation. Yeah. Uh, Cities being sacked is one of those things where it doesn't matter when in history you're talking or where in history you're talking. Yeah. People's kind of most base instincts tend to get the better of them. Yeah. And not all people and not every single time, but... If you're going to put money on it, just assume that the aftermath of a siege is the worst possible place to be. Yeah. There is pillaging, there is looting, there is burning. Yeah, it's 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 the worst thing. So that happens to Tenochtitlan, and as far as we're really concerned, that's the end of the Aztec Empire. Cuauhtémoc was not killed. Okay. Uh, Cortes kept him around as a puppet ruler for a while. Okay. And so technically the Mexico were still under his command, but there was there wasn't even any pretense. Like with at least with Montezuma, he seemed to be willing. Yeah. Uh, a willing participant in all of that. And you know, you could make the argument that there was still uh, an Aztec empire that was uh, being ruled by Montezuma even though it was under under duress seemingly. Yeah. Uh Cotamoc, there was no there was no pretense. He was a puppet. He was executed about 4 years later for basically having the potential to incite revolt he was hanged for virtually no reason yeah yeah that's generally where we talk about the end of the aztec empire yeah i know that's a little bit fast and to the point but really like the the fact is that it would be a very different story if it wasn't for smallpox the the spanish still took eight months (laughs) i mean tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of Mexico died in less than a year's span from that smallpox epidemic as well as the war like those two things together there there was a massive loss of life there and that's one of those things about early contact that I did really I I did super hammer home with the episode that I did on smallpox but I feel like it's missed a lot when you look at Cortez and all of the terrible things that he's done it's I think 
most interesting to look at the fact that he probably shouldn't have been able to pull off anything that he pulled off. No. He was not... A lot of this was just blind luck or accident. Yeah. He was not militarily stronger than the Aztecs. I don't care what you say about their metal armor. I don't care what you say about their firepower. He wasn't. No. He absolutely was not. In fact, he was essentially a pawn in a power struggle uh, within the Aztec Empire when you really break it down. And I mean, from from there, it just keeps getting sad because really what happens is Tenochtitlan is set up as a capital for what becomes known as New Spain. When, when it was just kind of the islands, it didn't really need uh, yeah. any sort of political structure. But now that they were starting to expand into the interior and they had grabbed a foothold in the uh, former Aztec Empire, all of a sudden there's a new kind of mechanism that's going to be needed Mm-hmm. And the Spanish really latch on to the American continents with this uh, with this battle, because otherwise, what did they have? Veracruz, yeah, uh, the beginnings of a very long struggle against the Mayans in the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, it, it, not it much setting up for centuries of guerrilla colonialism. Essentially, yeah. So, I mean, the story after that is kind of predictable. The Spanish used indigenous tribes um, as allies when it was convenient for them. Yeah. The indigenous tribes suffered greatly from smallpox, especially, but also from the subjugation uh, beneath um, the Spanish and sometimes beneath their, at least ethnically, former countrymen. Yeah. Until it was no longer convenient to use them as enforcers. I mean, the Tlaxcalan got it just the same way as everybody else did. They... They won their freedom from the Mexica at a terrible, terrible price and, and didn't reap any benefits from it at all. Yeah. And there's no way they could have possibly known that going into it. I mean, this is one of those uh, situations where no one wins with disease. That's not that's not an intentional thing. That's very much a force of nature. And yeah. the reason I find that so fascinating personally is that there's... It, it, it always feels like with, with history, there's always a very deliberate causality to things. And a lot of that is us imposing it on, on on the narrative. Yeah. But there are definite times in history where it wasn't us as human beings. It wasn't it, yeah. we we didn't do this. Yeah. The at least not intentionally. Yeah. And the Europeans had no way of knowing that bringing smallpox along with them would wreak the havoc that it did. Yeah. That's not to absolve them of anything. I mean, I, I you almost get the impression that they wouldn't have had a problem with that had you told them. Yeah. Which is terrifying but let's not project too much onto these very long gone people yeah (laughs) (laughs) the aztecs weren't just gone with that really i mean the power structure had fallen apart but there were about 30 more years of wars with indigenous people in the areas uh uh, there there was a series called the chimichek wars that was um particularly long and hard fought but i mean the the power vacuum that was created with the fall of of uh, Tenochtitlan was huge, and and I mean I I, 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 glazed, I glazed over it a little bit, but the whole time that they're preparing to march on Tenochtitlan and during the siege, while people aren't or while Spanish and their allies aren't maintaining the direct siege, they're also going around and they're sweeping up Aztec allies. Yeah, you know, and and making sure that they're unable to help out. Yeah. Uh, what happened to the other two major city states? Taken. Taken? Yep, taken in these operations. Because by the time that Cortez is uh, is rallying and Salax Collins are pledging 
all of this military support. Did the smallpox spread to those ones too? Eventually, yes. Again, not not quite as quickly, but I, I don't know the exact order that these, these cities are falling in. Eventually, everybody that we're talking about here is going to suffer like massive casualties to smallpox. Okay. I, I there's it's hard to it's hard to stress just how devastating smallpox was to the new world. Because the thing about such a long incubation time is that how far can you travel in three weeks? Pretty far. Pretty far. Even so what you even would back have then. what you would have was a village ravaged by smallpox and the survivors would pick up and leave because well, everyone was dying of smallpox. Yeah. Except some of them would be uh, carriers. They would get to the next village, think that they were safe, but they had brought the smallpox with them. Yeah. The phrase wildfire gets used a lot, and it's very apt. Yeah. It's such a runaway process. And I, again, I think I hit this on the uh, on the other episode that I did, but uh, an expert uh, in, in one book that I read talking about smallpox, an expert was basically asked... Was there any way that the uh, small po- smallpox pandemic would not have wiped out 90% of the population of the Americas? And basically he said the only thing he could think of was preventing Europeans from crossing the Atlantic until the invention of the smallpox, uh, smallpox vaccine and then vaccinating all of them before they got there. Wow. I mean, they didn't understand what germs were. Germ theory is a uh, is 150 years old. Yeah, it's not. It's a really recent thing. Yeah. So, I, I it's smallpox is the real bad guy in this story. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, mm. I mean, the siege of Tenochtitlan was happening in 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 this weird vacuum where everyone in the city was dying anyways without any military action. Yeah. Uh, all of its allies were being swept up in these uh, these quick military actions that were kind of having a snowball effect where um, a lot of the cities didn't fall through military action. A lot of them were a matter of going, hey, you remember those Spanish guys that you've been hearing about? That's us. You want to fight? And them going, no, thank you. Uh, we're good on the fighting front. Let's be friends. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll often see that with, uh, with conquerors. That they'll generally offer people the chance or the choice of not fighting well that's how you grow your empire right <laughs> right and i mean well i i'm, I'm saying that in contrast the to the way. idea I'm, I'm saying that in contrast to the idea that they just roll through and and uh, take everything, everything by yeah. force a lot of the more successful expansions have offered that choice yeah but at the same time a lot of times they're doing that in contrast to other people who have come before them that did not offer that choice yeah. for example the mongolians were considered extremely progressive for offering the choice to live under mongol rule yeah or be subject to a siege yeah um and a lot of people gratefully took the uh the not siege option yeah uh which is understandable um did alec uh, did alexander the great do that a lot too you know what i don't know as much about alexander the great as i really should he's a big gaping hole in my general knowledge kind of side of history but he he spreads so fast. My understanding of it is that his reputation preceded him so much that, that people he just... heard that he was coming and they surrendered before he even gave them the option. Oh, yeah. So I'm not sure how much of that was his idea. <laughs> and how much just fell into place for him? Kind of, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it's not so much his emissaries showing up and being like, you've got a choice. It was them being like, we're on your side now. So, 
anyways the uh the spanish the, their main gain out of this was a foothold on the mainland but as a big secondary one is that the aztec empire was sort of big enough that it got them almost all the way to the pacific so now they had an overland route to get to the pacific ocean rather than going down and around the southern tip of south america okay so that's a pretty big thing for them yeah we're a long ways away from a panama canal but uh but we're closer to the uh to the spanish gold in the philippines yeah, well the spanish gold in the philippines involved going they they tended to go around africa for that okay yeah but th- th- that's exactly what's happening right now is them setting up stuff in the philippines you're absolutely right and what that means is that you can set up when I say an overland route, what that means is you have a port on each side and then you have a trade caravan that moves between them. Yeah. And that's that's far better than what they had before this. And it would also facilitate a spread up the coast of North America into what would now be California. California. And so that, that happened fairly quickly after the fall of the Aztec Empire. Yeah. Cortez himself didn't stay that notable after this, to be perfectly honest with you. He was given a a short governorship, but he was quickly replaced. He was in charge of the construction of Mexico City on the foundations of Tenochtitlan. Yeah. He did some exploration work. He got into some legal trouble here and there. But, I mean... He probably had some pretty bad PTSD. Well... Yeah, that's that's an interesting topic. I, I that's that's another one that I, I don't understand or I don't know how much of a modern construct that is because warfare is so different today than it was then. There's been a lot of people that have argued that PTSD is a lot less common, not impossible, but really, really rare in ancient or classical armies because well, the amount yeah, of like action we had... they saw was so intermittent and so brief when it did happen. Like we had discussed earlier total war is a pretty new concept i i may i mainly brought that up because of how devastating the fall of uh tenochtitlan tenochtitlan (laughs) welcome to my old mexico city (laughs) welcome to my last several hours oh i have to say it again of old mexico city was basically no that's that's fair that's reasonable i think the impression that I got more than anything was that Cortez died very, very wealthy and very, very bitter. He didn't really feel like he had gotten the glory that he deserved for what he had accomplished. Okay. He didn't feel like people had listened to him enough on the direction to take New Spain. And I mean, the reality of it is that someone like Cortez is never satisfied. Yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, he had worked extensively with the Christianization of the New World after all of this went down. Like, that was a, a very important cause to him. Yeah. But I don't think you can satisfy Hernan Cortez. Yeah. And he didn't die satisfied. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, we can, we can point fingers where, wherever we want on that. It doesn't really matter. I, I still don't think that he's the kind of guy that that walks away and says you know what i think i've done enough here drifts off into the sunset not him that's not his his personality at all yeah so yeah the whole the whole thing is just i i the the thing i found most interesting about it is how much the spanish seem to be along for a wild ride and happen to profit massively off of the outcome yeah for reasons that were completely beyond their control or intent they should never have taken that city no 
they should never have been able to speak to the locals. Yeah. They should never have managed to topple that entire empire. They never should have managed <laughs> to gain the number of allies that they did. Yeah. They never, like, none of this should have happened. In fact, Cortez himself never should have gotten there. He should have been arrested in Cuba and never made it to the New World. Or the, the mainland, at least. Yeah. This whole story is just... Kind of insane. <laughs> Do you remember Mr. Magoo? Yes. Yeah, the the blind the, guy, the, the blind, blind old guy, guy like, cartoon where yeah. he like, you know, accidentally like walks around a construction site and yeah. an I beam happens to swing in just in time for him to walk yeah. onto, and he has no idea that he nearly died seventeen times. Yeah, like I don't want to make too comical a figure out of Cortez because he was a terrible person and he killed a lot of people, uh-huh. a lot of people. <laughs> but the the big course of all of this, <laughs> the the bird's eye view of it. Yeah. It's kind of like, wait, how did that all happen? He just yeah. had, like, he just stumbled into all of this success. It never should have gone this way. Yeah. Which is, which is absolutely fascinating. Because when you hear about this story, it's almost in the, it's almost always in the context of Cortez as a genocidal maniac, at least yeah. these days. Like, there's a very strong reaction against Cortez. Yeah. And fair enough. Yeah. He did, as we've said numerous times, he did some pretty bad stuff. Yep. I don't think he should be lauded. Uh, he doesn't deserve a day af- named after him. No. But, you know, at the same time, I, I think I think talking about this has been good because putting events that are this pivotal into some sort of perspective, I think is really important because um, there is so much emotion attached to them. Yeah. There is so much, sometimes pride, sometimes uh, anger and resentment sometimes uh just straight up indignation Mm -hmm. um that you know i i think it's really easy to get the impression that you know what happened yeah especially with something this important without really knowing what happened yeah it feels culturally like you've kind of absorbed the the whole story when you haven't really and besides all that it's a good story yeah it's really really fantastic story but the the popular narrative of it is that Cortez showed up with a couple dozen guys and his gunpowder mm-hmm. and committed mass genocide against this this noble and innocent group of people yeah who had done nothing to deserve this and i understand how emotionally that got there mhm i understand that progression but it doesn't really tell the whole story and I think that just because something is wrapped up in all of this emotion and all of this baggage, uh, I guess is a really good word for what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah. Just because something is wrapped up in all of this doesn't mean that it's not worth examination. And that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this show in the first place is I always had two main goals. One was to talk to people about something that they'd never heard of and was brand new to them. Yeah. Um, because this this sense of discovery of like something new and interesting and exciting tends to make for really good conversation (laughs) yeah but the other goal has always been let's talk about something that you feel like you know things about but can't really contextualize yourself yeah for example one of my starting examples had always been napoleon you feel like you know stuff about napoleon yeah but like where did he come from? Like, how did he get into power? Why did he leave? Like, you know, how how is he defeated? Things yeah. like that aren't necessarily always that well understood. Yeah, and it's not because they're necessarily difficult. 
Like, this wasn't a difficult story. No. We, we, the pronunciations were <laughs> just, just got awful. It was, that, that was a landmine and I'm, I apologize to everyone. <laughs> but besides that, it's not hard to follow. Yeah. This isn't a difficult narrative. There's no reason that it needs to be obscured for, uh, for reasons of complication. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's an obscure one for reasons of cultural difficulties. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in exploring those more because as, as tricky as they can be to navigate once in a while, I think it's important that we do have a better understanding of that stuff because they're mm-hmm. important to uh, the world around us today. They, they have resonating impact. And to think that you understand that, that story or that situation based on like the popular idea of all of this is misguided at best mm-hmm. and dangerous at worst yeah so no I'm, I'm glad we sat down and talked over this one because it was a it was a very good story it really puts into perspective what your average early 15th century or 16th century european uh looked like stacked up stacked up against other civilizations yeah which is always an interesting thing yeah and uh <clears throat> hey i guess we just founded mexico so there's that too that's awesome <laughs> Yeah, good story. So, uh, anything you think we missed? Anything you wanted to ask about before we wrap things up? Anything um, nagging at you? I can't think of anything. No, like okay, like I. Well, that's obvious, a good obviously, thing, but... it brings up questions about the fall of the Mayans and the, then the Incans. But, yeah, I think that's. But that's a that's a huge topic. Yeah, to... I think it's fair for me to say that that's a story <laughs> for another time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, broad strokes is their story looked a lot like this, except much more protracted. Okay. A much more uh, lengthy struggle. Cortez got lucky, yeah, in a lot of ways, and I, I think, I think probably a more reasonable way to look at it is that the fall of the Aztec Empire probably should have looked like those other ones, except that they had the misfortune to be hit with number one, the first major empire to have significant uh, interactions with Europeans, yeah. Number two, were completely blindsided by the smallpox epidemic. Yeah. And number three, were clearly plagued by internal unrest. Yeah, yeah. internal disunity uh, that led very quickly to the fall of the empire. Because if Cortez hadn't been able to play these these uh, various nations off of each other, it w- he would never have had enough support to get even close to Tenochtitlan. Yeah. Let alone topple the entire empire. And so what you see with the, the Incas and the, uh, the Mayas, the Mayans, is uh, the same story, but with the benefits of the misfortune of others as uh, uh, a bit of guidance on how much you should trust these Europeans or yeah. rather how much you should not. Yeah. And, uh, and exactly what they're capable of. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the very, very broad one paragraph answer to that question fair (laughs) yeah so yeah i mean talking talking about talking about uh european contact in the americas is always a a tricky one and it can get a little bit heavy yep i think we did a pretty good job this time yeah but yeah i i uh as i said i think it's a a really interesting topic and a really important one so uh thank you very much for coming on the show no problem I really enjoyed having you on, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely.
Hernan Cortes was not a good man. The Aztec Empire did nothing to provoke him to military action other than exist in a place that Cortes wanted, and that's a terrible reason to go to war. However, the Aztecs were not an idyllic and peaceful group of people closer to nature than Europeans. They were a complex, sophisticated, and often brutal civilization that were able to hold their own against the Spanish until smallpox put them at a most severe disadvantage. And to think of them otherwise is frankly insulting to those that lived there before European contact. The conquistadors had no defensible reason to move against them, but it's important not to treat the Aztecs as not ready. The real tragedy of this story is the disease that they were exposed to at their most tactically vulnerable time. Had smallpox not made the journey along with the Europeans, or had the Aztecs had better immunity against the disease, we likely would have told a much different story today. Next time on HI101, we'll be discussing Akhenaten, a pharaoh who attempted to convert all of Egypt to monotheism with disastrous consequences. That episode will be up on September 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.